0: It's the Autosport Podcast. A Vettel win or a Bottas loss. We look back at the Brazilian Grand Prix. Sebastian Vettel claimed his fifth Formula One victory of the 2017 season in the Brazilian Grand Prix. A little bit too late to do anything about the World Championship, but after a difficult run for Ferrari, it's certainly a big boost for everyone at Maranello to, to finally get a win on the board in the second half of the season. The last victory was Hungary, of course. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me for this Autosport podcast, first we have Ben Anderson. Now, Ben is the, the star writer of uh, Autosport's driver ratings, or at least he's the star writer when I don't do them and, and allow him <laughs> a little little share of the, of the limelight. So Ben, how, mu- how much criticism have you had for your Brazilian ones?
1: I've been hiding under a rock, so I have no idea. You know, as everyone knows, I'm biased for and against every driver, and I'm told about that frequently.
0: You
2: cynically marked Lewis down by one point. Unforgivable. For what is with Ben Anderson? <laughs> and we
1: have one of these fans in the room. You said that you'd never let him get this close.
0: I'd forgotten about the restraining order. Sorry, Ben. And that voice, for those uh, for those not familiar, is Stuart Codling. himself, no stranger to a little bit of social media criticism for his uh, for his comments. Has your Kimi and fan been on to you in the last few days? No, he's gone off the radar. I've I've gone, I'd say about three,
2: four, maybe even five weeks without getting my. Either weekly or bi-weekly, uh, I wish Autosport would get some more interesting writers' email. We Just all wish that.
1: The world's worst heckler. Have you been attacked by the Felipe Massa fan club yet?
2: Not yet,
0: but uh, you know it's only a matter of time. Good thing I didn't go to Brazil, who knows what might have happened. Speaking of Brazil, let's have a little bit of a look at the race. It was a battle for victory between Sebastian Vettel and Valtteri Bottas. Bottas started on pole, lost the lead at the start. Vettel hold him off in the pit stop sequence. Ben Anderson. Was this a race that Vettel won or one that Bottas lost?
1: Uh, a race that Bottas lost, I think it's fair to say. He had everything in his hands, pole position, uh, made a mess at the start. Vettel didn't make a great start either, uh, but Bottas, I think, fell victim to one of his, probably his main weakness that we've seen uh, throughout his F1 career. He's just a little bit tentative on the first lap, doesn't tend to uh, ace the the, the opening sequences of corners is a little bit soft in wheel-to-wheel battle sometimes. and I think he he half-closed the door on Vettel. Obviously, he was worried about the fact that he'd made a bad start. And in the end, he kind of gave it away at the first corner, I thought. He could have toughed it out with Vettel, made him work a bit harder for it, but he just slotted into second. And once he'd done that, it was race over.
2: Yeah. Meekly capitulated was the uh, words I scribbled down on my little bit of paper in the hope that I would use them somewhere, and I just have.
0: You see, all your groundwork has paid off, but we are going to ask you to say more than a a few words. I don't know know if you've got pre-prepared phrases for all of these, but it does seem, Codders, like this was a race that was basically decided by those first 10 or so seconds.
2: Obviously, I agree with Ben in all things, uh, including in his excellent race report this week, pointing out some of the occasions in which Bottas has tried to... uh, stick up for himself uh, on the first lap and it hasn't gone well for him so it seems like when he when he doesn't meekly capitulate he ends up having his wing trodden on anyway so the 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 trouble with uh, drivers like this is that this sounds like name dropping but I was interviewing him it was John Surtees the late John Surtees once said to me that in in his time You uh, had drivers, you you basically got to know everyone on the grid, their driving styles. You knew that there were people that you could race with, people you had to avoid like the plague because they were nutters. And there were people who, quite frankly, you could take liberties with. And Bottas has become a driver that the others take liberties with because they know he'll back down. Yeah, Martin Brundle
1: mentioned this in Brazil, actually, but in reference to Daniel Ricciardo, who had a brilliant race, a customary brilliant race, charging back from a from a lowly grid position and getting spun round on the first lap, making those lunges on the brake, successfully ducking past drivers. And he does that repeatedly, and he's almost earned himself, Ronald was saying, a reputation for doing it. So drivers comply with his demands. He flies down the inside. They know he's going to control the car and not crash. And they, they don't jump out of his way, but he, the more he does it, the more other drivers seem to let him do it. And it's funny how some drivers command that kind of extra respect from their rivals and get the benefit of the down others end up constantly finding disaster
0: it becomes a virtuous circle for drivers doesn't it if you do that then drivers make it a little bit easier for you they get intimidated they expect it to happen and almost they're expecting to be taken by surprise by these moves so we saw that a few times i think when ricardo went to pass was it ericsson and there was just that little moment where ericsson was turning and he thought oh is he going to keep coming but but no it's just he did it a little bit and thought oh well and bottas just hasn't
1: earned that level of respect yet he yeah he seems a soft touch in battle to me a a little bit in the way that Nico Rosberg was considered a soft touch in his early career and he had to fight quite hard to to prove that he wasn't when he was racing the top guys and he often found himself getting involved in clumsy incidents because it just wasn't one of those aspects of racing that came naturally to him and I don't think it's an aspect that comes naturally to Bottas he's very fast obviously very skilled very diligent and hard-working but I think he doesn't quite have that that star racing instinct that someone like Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Daniel Ricciardo has become renowned
0: for. The worrying thing is that this is five seasons into his F1 race career now. This was a problem when he was at Williams and it became a bit of a sore topic in the team at times when they were looking at it internally. So he's been aware of it, he's been working on it and you just find yourself asking if he's just not the right kind of personality to, to do that. The point you made with Rosberg when sometimes he went a little bit too far when he was almost trying to force it. You know, if you don't have that instant, feel for what you can do and what you can get away with it's really really hard to manufacture because you end up sort of having to push yourself to go a little bit over the line you think's there but as soon as you're committed to going a bit over your line it doesn't matter whether you go an inch over it or or five meters over it
1: it's hard to fight against your own natural personality type isn't it some people are risk takers and you look at someone like Verstappen or Ricardo, they're both risk takers they usually get it right sometimes they get it wrong but they're always going to go for it and Bottas strikes me as somebody who's a bit risk averse he he would lean on the more cautious side but when you're racing the top guys sometimes you you have to lay it all on the line I think that's something he's going to have to learn and learn quickly I think it's something Rosberg learned and just didn't really come it didn't really
0: come naturally to him. Well it all comes down to the old if you're thinking about it and trying to force yourself to do it you're not doing it properly it should be subconscious processing because when ricardo's making those moves a lot of the time yeah he'll have in mind where he's going to do things but if the opportunity presents itself you feel it's just second nature to to go for it and, and, and really put the car in there
2: it's mental effort that you should be spending elsewhere isn't it if you're thinking about how how i ought to be racing how someone else would be racing
1: well, i do think in saying all of that that it was one of bottas's better performances overall through a race weekend this year i mean Jacques Villeneuve called it an embarrassing race for him and I think that's a little bit unfair when you consider the the circumstances of how Hamilton's race unfolded as well as yeah. Bottas's race but you know, he did have pole positions he's had a difficult period since the summer break falling out of title contention starting to doubt himself he seems to have started to come out the other side of that and it'll be interesting to see whether he can use this latest set, setback in a positive way and come out stronger or whether he goes back into that negative cycle
2: yeah. Do you know, I I think I can hear something from the kitchenette, which is quite something given how far away it is. But what was that, Jacques Villeneuve saying someone's race career is embarrassing? Yeah, the, uh, over in the kitchenette, the, the, uh, the kettle has picked a fight with the coffee
0: machine. <laughs> Very well put. I had to put you up on one thing. I would say what we have in our Richmond office is a kitchen rather than yeah. a kitchenette. I it's think, a kitchen I think, diner, isn't it? Yes, Yeah. that's yeah. one way of putting it. Don't undersell it. Now... There was one other flashpoint in the race, which was the pit stop sequence. Bottas went first, Vettel responded. It wasn't a massive gap between them, Ben. Do you think there was any way for Bottas to have, have got ahead or launched a slightly, at least contest, the braking zone into, into Turn 4?
1: Yeah, I think that certainly was possible. You can argue it two ways. He needed to be slightly closer Uh, before he made his pit stop. I think he was training Vettel by about 1.6 seconds. It was difficult for the Mercedes to get close to the Ferrari. We saw in the late stages of the race how difficult Hamilton found it once he came up behind Raikkonen. But Hamilton did manage to get within a second at times of Raikkonen, albeit on a faster tyre.
0: And we do know that Mercedes isn't always the easiest in, in turbulent air. It's never easy for any of them, but the Mercedes seems a bit more sensitive than some.
1: Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why both Bottas and Hamilton, I think, Suffered defeat in this race once they didn't have the advantage of superior track position. But Bottas didn't really do a lot wrong. His in-lap was fine. His out-lap, I think, was quite strong. Uh, better than uh, Vettel's pace, but what cost him was the Mercedes pit stop. I mean, Mercedes are usually very slick, one of the slickest teams on the grid, but their pit stop was uh, six-tenths of a second down on the Ferrari pit stop, and that was a crucial detail, really, that that cost him a chance of contesting. There's no guarantee that he would have past Vettel um, he had the power of the undercut Bottas but he would have had a, a chance at least of fighting him for it and that was his last chance to, to rescue the race.
2: Extraordinary isn't it the tiny differences that make or break a race here because we are talking about two pit stops that came in under three seconds and yet one is considered slow and the other one is considered very quick.
0: It's always interesting to look at the the last sector on the in lap combined with the first sector on the out lap and if you look at it Vettel's time was fifty six point six seven two seconds for those two sectors. Bottas was fifty six point nine five eight, so even if you factor in that six tenths, that's only three tenths slower. Bottas was, so he'd he'd done a reasonable job to put himself within striking distance. And I think it would have been difficult to complete a move. But given he got to, he came out sort of three four five tenths behind, you just feel there was that little bit more that they could have given themselves just that little bit of of extra chance. Because as soon as Vettel was through turn four. It was game over. There was never any chance of, of Bottas being able to challenge him. But as uh, Mercedes boss Toto Wolff said, it was a roll of the dice. Really, they
1: they knew they they lost the race. They just gambled on trying to pit earlier than Ferrari and hoping that it would be enough. Really, the race, as we said, was lost at the start in the
0: first corner. But with a sharper pit stop, maybe it was possible. Possibly, and two point seven is not a massively slow. It's you know two point one's pretty pretty much at the upper end now of. of what you'll see in a in a race situation 2.7 is not not terrible by any means is it
1: no but you still feel that Vettel you know with all of his experience and ability would have been able to defend even had Bottas been closer on that run down to the fourth corner so I think even even with a clean pit stop and a slightly better in lap from Bottas it I don't think he was going to take the lead I think at best he was he was going to draw partly alongside maybe contest the corner
0: but I think you know all the all the aces were in Vettel's hands what happens in that race if it was Lewis Hamilton in the Mercedes that was dicing for the lead? He said he was the quickest all weekend after the race as he came through from the pit lane start through to fourth place. And in fact, he wasn't so far off what was he. He was five and a half seconds off, off raceman of Vettel by the end and, and stuck behind Raikkonen. So the other question is, do we think there was an un, unreleased performance in Bottas's car, if you like? It's difficult to compare them because of the strategic side of things, but you do feel that maybe a Hamilton in the same position might have been able to necessarily definitely turn the tables but make a better fist of it, whether it's through being a bit more aggressive in trying to hold on to the lead in the first corner or attacking even more through the pit stop sequence
1: yeah, I think uh Hamilton you know probably would have been a favorite for pole had he not crashed on the first flying lap of q one, but the fact he did that you know dictated his destiny for the rest of the weekend. Would he have had a better chance had he been in Bottas's? position after the pit stop maybe I mean he was able to follow and closer than Bottas was able to follow Vettel but that's a different Ferrari driven by a different driver so it's a difficult situation again to translate by a slower driver. I think Hamilton's race was excellent <laughs> That's a good point as well Hamilton's race was excellent I mean Toto Wolff called it an astonishing drive but then that's team boss talking up his own driver of course I think it's quite difficult to compare in that not only did Hamilton start on the on a different tyre compound. As Vettel pointed out, that was the preferential strategy in the end because of the you know, much higher track temperatures there were on Sunday compared to, to qualifying day. Uh, so Hamilton was on the faster tyre at the end and I, on the more robust tyre for the first in when the cars were heavier. Uh, so that helped him, I think, in terms of making up on the overall race time. But also, you know, Mercedes took his car out of Park for May. They refreshed all the parts. They put a new engine in, which someone suggested might even be a new spec looking towards 2018. Certainly had more power available to him because he was using a new engine, as he said it unleashed to full potential, whereas Bottas is managing an engine that he's had in the car since, I believe, Spa. So Hamilton was always going to be quicker because he had a quicker car than any of the other front runners. So a good drive. He achieved the maximum that Mercedes predicted before the race. Fourth place was the best they thought they could do with a safety car interfering.
0: Um, I think Hamilton... The well, safety car came a bit too early for him, really, didn't it? Yeah.
1: To make a big difference, yeah. Um, and that was just in their you know, pre-race predictions, trying to work out where he possibly could finish. I mean, you could see that the, the top four cars were much quicker than any other car on the track in that race. So really, Hamilton should be expecting to, to finish fourth with a clean race. Um, a good drive, but you know, to win that race, he needed superior track position, especially in that Mercedes, which, as you mentioned, there doesn't follow other cars very well. And Hamilton cost himself
2: that chance by crashing in qualifying, which Bottas didn't. Hence, getting one mark deleted in his driver ratings. Absolutely. Well, of course,
0: well, this was something that Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner flagged up earlier today. They're putting the magazine together as as we speak now. Hamilton lost one mark for crashing on on his first uh, proper. Q1 lap, Vettel lost one mark in his rating for being a few hundredths slower than Bottas and not, uh, not. Imp- I think he did not improve on his second Q3 lap, did he? So uh, this is a chance for us just to challenge you on the driver ratings. Bring it on. Surely there's a difference in magnitude between a, a Q1 shunt and giving away a few hundredths.
1: Yes, there is there's a difference in magnitude between those two things, but I mean, if you're thinking if you're trying to compare the qualifying performance versus the race performance, Hamilton's race drive was flawless. There's nothing really you could say against it. So really, if you were just judging the race, you'd give him 10 out of 10. Uh, I think the the qualifying error, it was one error. Uh, and I've, in many ways, I've just stopped him that mark because it was that one mistake and the recovery was so good that you'd almost want to give him a, a 10 out of 10. Okay, so he should have been thinking about it some more maybe in the top two, given the pace of the car. But he's, he wasn't going to do any better than fourth. He did finish right on the leading group. So I think he he did the most he could for making up making up for that mistake. It's how much you want to punish one mistake. And I felt one mark was fair enough. I think with Vettel, he should have had pole. And I think he, he felt like he should have had pole, but he had two opportunities to do that. And both laps weren't quite good enough. So he kind of loses half a mark for each like, I can't give half marks, can I? So in many ways, you'd probably give Vettel a nine and a half or Hamilton a, uh, a nine and a half, but it can't be done. So
2: Well, here's the thing. I think Ben Anderson's driver rating should come with a set of sporting regulations in which a tariff is enshrined permanently for uh, and, and made very clear what points should be docked for what particular offences.
1: Very difficult to do because as Kimi Räikkönen always says, every incident is different. Judged by different stewards in different conditions, you can't compare apples with oranges.
2: We need a permanent commission of stewards to adjudicate on your (laughs) driver ratings.
0: (laughs) This is exactly what we need. I should say, I think I once gave a half mark, and I think it might have only been a half mark for Luca Padoa in one of his Ferrari return outings in 2009. Oh, did
2: that break the internet?
0: I, I don't think anything. People were asking why I gave him a, a half mark, although so that it's was a, a breach of the technical regulations, yeah. isn't it?
2: Surely people were asking why he got a drive.
0: Well, that, that was that was uh, that was fair. Difficult situation for Badao, though. I, I did expect him to do a little bit better. We've we digressed massively, massively there. But uh, Hamilton's recovery drive was was very very good. Although it was interesting to compare it to the the drive Ricardo put in in terms of the fact that Hamilton with the with the engine power he had. Most of his passes were able to be pretty controlled, whereas Ricardo, with the Renault engine, not helped by being admittedly not nowhere near the altitude of Mexico, but being at altitude, and what they learned in Mexico meant that Ricardo really had to lay it on the line a little bit more to contest those braking zones. That's not Hamilton's fault. You know, it's his job to go through as quickly and easily as as possible. I I enjoyed watching the Ricardo moves more just because of the the type of moves they had to be.
1: Yeah, he had to to work a lot harder, didn't he, to to make his Recovery, but then it should be noted, of course, that the Red Bull is still, even though not on the Ferrari Mercedes level, in those conditions with that Renault engine setting by far and away much quicker than any other car on the on the grid. So he was still going to make those those moves probably successfully anyway. And you mentioned the the moment with Ericsson earlier and whether there might have been a collision. As much as Ricardo's reputation precedes him, also those drivers know they're not really in a fight with the Red Bull and there's not exactly. much point putting up uh, resistance. I, I thought it was quite amusing that Sergio Perez tried, at least with Hamilton, when he was coming through, defended into Turn One and at least made him work for it. Whereas most others would just go, "I can't be bothered with this. Off you go. I'm not. You're not, you're not racing me." I, I like the idea that every car is racing every car all the time, rather than always thinking in this strategic term.
0: Well, it's difficult, isn't it, particularly with the DRS? Because you saw when it was when Hamilton came through Alonso. Obviously, all Alonso was thinking about is I have got to keep the drs to massa so his job in that situation is almost more a sports car mentality wasn't it it's it's almost like get lapped losing the least amount of time because alonso thought there's no way i'm gonna be able to keep him behind me so i guess it's uh it's it's the thing that drivers have to do they have to keep an eye on what their real race is but it is a shame because you would rather see them wheel banging their way around a few corners
1: although it's interesting that alonso did say that after mexico where he did hold Hamilton behind him that he would try to do the same thing again before the right. race so he, <laughs> <Right> <laughs> he changed his mind <laughs> right at the
0: very end of the race in Mexico though wasn't it so course, had he been able yeah. to keep him behind for a few laps it would have it would have uh, changed the results but uh, but not in this case and obviously in Red Bull's situation in that race Verstappen could sort of hang on to the to the Mercedes and Ferraris but couldn't do anything about them and then he was quite keen on making that late pit stop to get fast lap I think yeah, he he took too much from the tyres,
1: didn't he, in both stints, just trying to keep up with them. He he never knows when he's beaten, really. Uh, but uh, this weekend, it was just too much for him to overcome. The, the Red Bull was a quick car, but the Renault engine, we know it's down on power, but with the reliability problems they were having, particularly in, with the turbo, they had to turn it down even more. Uh, and that meant the Red Bull wasn't as strong in race trim as it has been in recent races. And you know, Verstappen was something akin to... A man with a knife in a gunfight, wasn't he really?
0: I'd also now like to convene an all-sport podcast stewards meeting. We like to do this sometimes after races. There are a couple of incidents of interest in the race. The one that did earn a penalty was the Roman Grosjean-Esteban Ocon collision on the first lap. Ten second penalty for Grosjean.
1: I thought the penalty was harsh. Yeah, there was contact eventually between the Haas and the Force India. But in my view, Ocon was already out of control. Ocon was trying to come past Grosjean on the outside. Ocon locked up and started to lose the rear of his car at the same place or just before the same place that Hamilton crashed the day before. Uh, And simultaneously, Grosjean lost control on the inside line, he claims because he had a puncture from contact through the the opening corners. So it looked like synchronised spinning to me, really. Yes, there was contact, but I think the contact was an after effect of the incident. I don't think it was Grosjean's contact that Uh, caused Ocon's incident. I think it was an after effect. Okay, yes, Ocon's car ended up in the barriers where it might not have, but that's a very high-speed corner. So I think um, for the stewards to penalize Grosjean 10 seconds for causing the collision is unfair because I don't think Grosjean caused the collision. I think they both spun and then they happened to collide. Yeah,
2: when you see the in-car from Ocon's perspective, you see him giving it a dab of oppo, as it were, before the impact. So he was already... Uh, bordering on being out of control, and at that point, even the tiniest touch will send you off because you're already actually, you know, axiomatically, you are at the limit.
0: But playing devil's advocate on on this one, as uh, as I personally would consider it a racing incident, Ocon ultimately did have room on the outside to uh, have a moment and and gather it up. He could use a bit a little bit of runoff, whereas Grosjean on the inside had less margin for error. Ultimately, it was his his moment that you could argue caused the contact.
2: Well, I I ran the full gamut uh, during the many uh, replays we got of it, because at first I thought, well, it's a racing incident, isn't it? It's just first lap, rush of blood to the head. Then I kind of looked at it again and thought Grosjean had kind of overcommitted himself hugely. So if they were going to penalise either of them, it would be him because he's wholly or predominantly to blame. So... I, I can understand the penalty from that perspective. Uh, but then ha- having having watched it again again, and seeing Ocon do the dab of Oppo, uh, it did bring me a little bit closer to racing incident and it being a bit harsh. Uh, but then Grosjean, as usual, threw his toys out the pram and said, uh, oh, I was hit and uh, I had a puncture. At that point, you just think, well, Silly boy, if you knew you had a puncture and you say you knew you had a puncture, why on earth did you put yourself into a position where you were racing wheel to wheel with another car?
0: I think I put it down as a as a bit of a, a live by the sword, die by the sword for Ocon as well. You're going to go around the outside in a fast corner. Yeah, Grosjean had the room, but setting aside any moment Ocon had, when you ask that much of the driver on the inside, because Grosjean was ahead, initially, so it was on attempting the pass, I think you have to say, yeah, there is a, a risk element involved, and if someone makes makes an error has a moment like Grosjean hasn't hit you, then it's kind of well, Say la as they say. Uh, the other incident was the uh, the start incident with Stoffel Van Dorn, Kevin Magnussen and Daniel Ricciardo. No action on that.
2: Fair enough. It was a very difficult incident to unpick because I, I think the the Sky commentary team also had a little bit of vacillation. Where first they thought Ricardo had lost it all by himself because he got on the curbs, and, and then it just became clear that Magnuson had hit Mandorn, who then hit Ricardo. It was a fairly standard concertina accident at that pinch point. Was any of them wholly or predominantly to blame? If it if it were anyone, it would be Magnuson who made the initial contact, but Van Dorn had had a very peculiar turn one where he looked like he was making, he looked like he got a bit of go forward and then he sort of had to stamp on the brakes to avoid being sandwiched. And then he was trying to make up ground again through turn two and he was in a position to get himself hit.
1: I think slightly differently, I About that incident, I do think it was a racing incident. I don't think anyone should have been penalised, but I think the trigger point was actually Ricardo on the curb. He didn't lose it on the curb, but he did run very wide onto that curb, and you see him slow from doing that. And Van Dorn reacts to Ricardo's sudden slowing in pace and tries to jink round him. And given he's already, as you mentioned, kind of sandwiched in a group of cars from the first two corners, uh, as he moves, that kind of catches Magnuson out and. they just bump wheels and brakes the suspension on both cars and that knocks Dorn into Ricardo and turns him round. So I think it's Ricardo's loss of momentum on the kerb that triggers the accident, uh, but you couldn't really blame him for doing that. He was just driving his car and you know other cars were reacting to that.
0: It's certainly a racing accident. I think watching the replays, the point where watching those, I was thinking, uh, it's that point when Van Dorn goes into the first corner in the middle. Do you know what it's like when you're in a first lap thing in between two cars? you're basically committed to, through those sequence of corners, driving the cars either side of you. So I imagine Stoffel was sort of there, and then you sort of think, oh, OK, let's see if I can get away with this. And, it you know, it, you take your chances at the start, particularly if you're in a McLaren and you need to make up places. So I don't have any problem with what any of them did, but uh, all three of those cars had a role to play. So as uh, Codders says, hold your predominantly to blame. Yeah, if you, if, you go,
2: if, you, if you go barreling through a corner right on someone's tail and they have cause to slow down then uh you, you are you are in the definition of a sticky wicket aren't you because you you can't go left because that would put you on the grass and you can't go right because there's someone there who might lose control while trying to avoid you and as ben says round they went
1: and Magnuson was on the side as well i think you know ricardo as the trigger point Vandal was able to react to that because he was right there with him but Magnussen was unsighted by Van Dorn's car. So I think he, he would have felt we're all going to accelerate out of this corner now and on we go. And then suddenly that situation changes and you just don't have time to react when, as you say, the cars are all so close together.
0: Yeah, just one of those things. And that's why none of those three drivers were particularly concerned about what happened. The other big in-race story was Felipe Massa. He took what I like to consider to be a class win in seventh place. There was no way he was going to finish any higher up. Last home Grand Prix, his last last home Grand Prix, I should say, after last year. Are went, you sure? Well, who knows? He's going have more comebacks than status quo. <laughs> but it certainly went a lot better than last year's one when he, he crashed out in the in the wet conditions and had the the emotional walk through the pit lane. But this was actually a really strong performance from Massa, wasn't it? It shows that he can still, on his day, deliver really first-rate performances. And there have been pl- a number of weekends this season where you say, yeah, that's, that's really good. And you kind of think, if you'd done that week in, week out... Yeah, it would, Williams be, it, would Williams be in receipt
2: of his P forty five exactly
0: they'd be thinking well we've got the driver we need
1: yeah absolutely I think you said it all there really um, I answer well, my own question you did yeah you answered your own question
2: <laughs> this, this is the usual thing with Ed and the podcast isn't it yeah. starts with a question I don't know why we're and, here. answers it himself <laughs> then what do you think well but you just answered the question
0: yeah. Ed we can just sit here while you just talk we can if nod. that's easier that'd be the perfect situation <laughs> for me just I can just sit here and pontificate and uh, issue my verdicts but no but Massa's season. That's the question. He can still do it on his day. Has it just been bad luck? Is it the fact that the Williams is a bit in, is probably the most inconsistent car in the field? How much of that is down to the team and the car? How much of that is down to Massa as the as ultimately he is the lead driver in that team, even though he's similar level of points to to Stroll because the Baku retirement for Massa distorts that. But Massa has been the lead driver. Has he, you know, has he done a mega job? And has Williams let him down or? Is he as erratic as maybe he looks?
1: I think the answer is it's all of these things combined. Massa has been very good this year, I think. Um, He started very strongly. Not bad for an old boy, he said in Australia when he finished in the top six. The car was obviously much better relatively in the midfield early in the season as well. But Massa was the one getting into Q3. He was getting some good results he's, he's right when he says he's been unlucky in some races and the car's broken or something's gone wrong and he's lost points that he should have had and Baku is a good example he could have won that race without that that problem he felt he certainly would have been on the podium instead of Stroll
2: Russia Spain just off the top of my head the situations where he kind yeah, of was got hit by Vandorn in yeah. Spain
1: that was un that was unlucky for him so that is fair uh he has been by far and away the best performing Williams driver uh, the one consistently getting more out of the car in qualifying we know Massa's matters quick he does seem erratic when you especially when you watch him from trackside but he does have a knack of pulling it together somehow in qualifying but Williams I think also um, they're looking for a, I guess a different kind of driver to lead the team forward I guess they want somebody with a with a bit more technical focus and uh, someone they probably feel that Yes, Massa's doing okay, but how much time is still left in the car? Now, they were originally planning for Valtteri Bottas to be in that seat and he would have been the perfect reference point. He was already becoming the reference point for that team and Stroll can do his learning in the background while they they push on with Bottas. They know in Massa they've got a driver that they rate slightly less than they did Bottas and they bought him back because they really had no other option at that late stage at the beginning of the year. Now they're thinking, well... Is there somebody better out there? And thats it's possible there is. It's possible that Massa's right and that actually he is the best option that they have, even considering the other ones. But then also there's the financial situation of the team to consider. And you know, he keeps making these allusions to the fact that budget's more of a concern and that Williams need more of a financial package to come from whichever driver they sign. and is a professional and doesn't want to go down that route or more down that route than he, he has done already. So I think there's a big combination of different factors that have all come together. Williams are a competitive team, but they're not as competitive as they should be or could be. They haven't developed the car as well as they might have. has performed well. He has been unlucky, but then at other times he's gone missing. And Williams now have the, the, the best seat available that hasn't been taken yet. So they want to cast their net out and see who else they might be able to snap up. And Mass has decided, well, if you're not going to sign me now on the basis of what I've done, then I'm off. So I take myself out of contention, and that's fair enough for him, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I the circumstances caught up with the story I wrote, which is still available to read on Autosport Plus, uh, everyone. Get angry. Get angry. Uh, the, the story to which Ed Get alluded. tweeting. Yeah, tweet. Uh, you know where to find me. Uh, circumstances caught up with that a little bit, because speaking to Massa in uh, Mexico, and I followed up uh, Dieter's question, because Dieter came flat out and said, well, here, you're going to get the boot before the end of the season. And he said, what are you even talking about? Uh, but I followed that up and said, "If if you could carry on, would you? And the response he gave to me seemed very much to indicate that he actually wanted to carry on in Formula One and would carry on racing for the team uh, and then circumstances caught up with that in that um, very quickly he was uh, announced as retiring so i imagine behind the scenes certain elements are coming into place uh, we know or we at least hear that robert Kubica is a uh, million dollars short of finding the budget or was a million dollars short of finding the budget which is perhaps why that change hasn't been triggered there's also there's the well documented uh insur- insurance issues that uh, he faces which might make a one off problematic but it's not it, it's 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 not an insurmountable hurdle in the same way this supposed minimum age of 25 for the next william's driver uh is not an insurmountable hurdle uh so that has made Robert Kibitz is still the preferred candidate, but maybe they'll go with their line. Who knows? It's a very, very strange uh, picture. They that Williams seat, and as you said, Ben, interesting that it's a budgetary thing, uh, and we're talking about Robert Kubica being the preferred option, but still being a um, million dollars short. Very, very strange.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different factors in play. I think what we can say though is that both. Both of the last two years, Massa's retirements from Formula 1 have been somewhat enforced. He hasn't, Certainly, yeah. He hasn't wanted to stop. He didn't want to stop in 2016. He couldn't get another drive. Williams didn't want him, so he said bye-bye. And then they said, oh no, we need you now because we've lost our main driver. Can you come back? Yeah, fine. You know, Massa's a good guy. He didn't want to stop, so it fitted perfectly. And I think the same's happening again, really. he He wanted to carry on. I think what he said to you in Mexico was right. He said all year, I want to carry on. I love the cars. They suit my style. He feels he's driving well and he's done a mega job this year. And you know How mega a job is open to debate, but he's definitely been strong and he feels that he he could go on. But Williams are basically saying you're not our number one or number two or even maybe number three choice to have this seat next year for whatever reason. And he's just gone, well, if I'm not your number one choice based on that, then I'm just going to call it a day again and force your hand.
0: It's going to be interesting to see if, and in fact when, there isn't a Brazilian on the grid next year, given the response there was to Massa when he went up on the podium at the end of the race, and to Rubens Barrichello as well, you do wonder what it means for the popularity of F1 in Brazil and and that race. The, uh, the last time there was no Brazilian entered in a Grand Prix... 1982 San Marino Grand Prix, is a bit of an anomalous one for political reasons, that was a, a half grid rather than a grid, but the last race before that was 1970 Canadian Grand Prix, and the last full season, whether well, it wasn't a Brazilian driver, was 1969, so it's going kind to of be interesting to see how that changes the the popularity of the sport in Brazil. Another big story, this is off track, is the uh, is the Pirelli tyre plans for next year, I don't want to talk about tyres too much because we tend to uh, quite quickly <laughs> get into their black and round, but... They've unveiled this pink walled tyre and they want a name for it. Could go up to eight dry compounds next season to choose from over the season. Softy soft face. I saw plenty of variations of, of, of things like that. I'm not quite sure why they're so keen on a name for it. It does seem to me. I'm going to try and avoid answering my own question. but it seems No, to please me, do. It's it about tyres. seems tires. to me. Answer yeah, your yeah. own question. Answer away. away. Well, this <laughs> is my position. You'll have three compounds allocated for every race. Pirelli wants a wider range of compounds so they can better tune The tyres they select for each race to create the multi-pit stop races they want. So rather than choosing from a pool of five, you choose from a pool of eight. More tunable. Three tyre compounds for each race weekend. It doesn't matter where they fit in the whole range of compounds as far as I'm concerned. I mean, okay, we can know that. But for the viewers, I just say soft, medium, hard, regardless of which compound you've chosen. So they know. It's very clear. It's very obvious. Have a colour for soft, colour for medium, colour for hard. Am I am I mad or is that just the logical way of doing it?
1: No. I 100% agree with you.
0: Good.
2: Marvelous and it it just becomes confusing if they're going to introduce names for compounds alphabetic names are fine. Obviously the colors useful for us and fans watching trackside to differentiate but giving them names that reflect on this or that is is absurd and I, I can't imagine Ted Kravitz Reporting from the pit lane, saying, uh, "And now Vettel's coming in. He's 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 decided to pit off the Pustulants. and he's going to go and try and do the rest of the race distance on the bübos.
1: You, you will run out of alternatives. So we could have we could have hypersoft or megasoft at one end. We can up, up with mega hard, meta hard at the Firmulant. other end of the scale. Um, the Megatron super medium.
0: But I, I don't see this. I don't see there's this clash between because people say it's overcomplicating having too many compounds. I don't think it is because that's not relevant." to the viewers what the viewers want is a selection of three compounds that produces a good race the hardest compound at most races this year has been completely pointless yes admittedly that's partly because pirelli didn't really know what they were shooting at in terms of the overall downforce levels of the cars but it just seems like such an easy thing to do so that's one for for pirelli to do either pirelli do that or explain if there's a if there's a good reason why you don't need to do that
1: what will probably end up happening is that they'll end up with a similar range to what they have now it'll be five but those five will be two steps softer than what they have now. So you might not even need, really, a new name. You could just have an ultra soft that's two steps softer than what they have now, and the hard becomes the current soft. But they they can also compound and then you just keep the same names because as you say at the harder end they don't they already don't really need the medium or the hard tires they have so just they're redundant you just bring the names down and apply them to a different tire you don't
0: need to create new names i think it would be good to have if they've got a few more compounds they can start adapting a bit more for different types of track surface that's good yeah so i'd I'd like pirelli to be tunable shall we say in the the ranges they've got i suspect a
2: deficiency in compound interest
0: and that's a very good reason to go on to our next topic, which is the whole engine rows. With this extraordinary situation with uh, Renault Cyril Abitabal having a little bit of a, a dig at uh, Toro Rosso, saying it was no coincidence they were having problems. Toro Rosso went to the extreme, uh, extreme reaction of putting out a whole statement about it.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a, it's a, a good, uh, a delicious end-of-season row. given the championships were all settled, to have a bit of off-track spat going on between team and soon-to-be former engine supplier it felt a bit like gloves off knowing that one team's aligning itself with a different manufacturer for next year. So current supplier can just say, well, you can have all the rubbishy old used bits that we don't want and don't need. And then we'll blame you when they fail. And the team taking exception to that and saying, well, we haven't done anything different this year in terms of how we fit your parts. It's just your parts are too old and we have to keep reusing them because you can't build enough new ones. But it seemed that the real disagreement uh, was more the, the suggestion or uh, uh, the inference you could take from the Torosso s- statement that suggested Renault were deliberately compromising Torosso because of their tight battle in the Constructors' Championship. Only four uh, points between them now. They were suggesting that the lack of coincidence wasn't in the, the failures happening in the, the same team all the time. It was more that uh, they keep happening to us because we're in this this tight battle. It's not. They said it's not for the reason that mr abitable thinks it is and i think that's what got renault's
2: back up my problem with that is that it's very post hoc ergo prop to hoc analysis isn't it something's happened something else happens there's some circumstances there must be a connection and it's the sort of thing that idiots who have tinfoil wrapped around their hats
0: uh think correlation does not equal causation exactly And, and to be quite honest I think I quite like the idea of Renault sort of creating conditions where they have engine problems, given the problems they've had over the over the past few years with it. But it'll be all right. taurus will have Honda next year, so they'll be as reliable as clockwork.
2: I'm there sure. was a good bit of finger jabbing as well. Uh, one of one of the. Uh Uh, specialist Formula 1 websites, I think Belgian one, had a little bit of video from the paddock of uh, a little bit of a finger-jabbing argument between Cyril Abitbol and, I think, uh, Helmut Uh, Marco. It was interesting on two fronts. Firstly, that um, there was actual animated finger-jabbing going on. Love a bit of that. And secondly, that actually uh, someone, and it wouldn't have happened in Bernie's day, someone actually filmed something on their phone in the paddock and then published it and didn't have to pick bits of their pass out from where the sun doesn't shine.
0: <laughs> well, there we go. It's, uh, I have to say, I think finger jabbing at Helmut Marko probably gets you, uh, gets you a poor... A poor response. Was it? Was it Cyril doing the? Uh, oh yeah, the finger, finger jabbing. jabbing. Yeah, yeah. I doubt if Helmut well, well,
1: Marco. Helmet Marco played peacemaker in the end, didn't he? He was the one that came out and said, "No, look, this is all getting out of hand." This That's is when, is when you know silly. your war is deeply silly. <laughs> Renault treat us all fairly. There's no problem. We know the engines keep breaking down. We're all suffering. Let's move on.
0: Engines were also quite a big talking point because of the whole 2021 engine regulations and these Nicky Louder comments that came out in the Italian press. There's a lot a lot of politics going on about the new engine and whether it's too expensive. Ben, what's is this just the normal thing that whenever there's a compromise, everyone's a little bit unhappy?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, everyone's going to position themselves in a certain part of the spectrum, aren't they? I mean, Lauder's comments to the Italian press were interesting because he was having he was taking a wider shot at Liberty uh, media and, and the way they're going about understanding Formula One and what they want to do he was kind of suggesting that the honeymoon period is over, but what they're trying to do is just devaluing Formula 1. It's not really addressing the core problems of how do you make the sport grow or make more money for everybody or or add more fans. It's just tinkering around at the edges with what they've already got. Um, as far as the engine rules go, I think everyone's in broad agreement that the current engines are too expensive, even the manufacturers and Mercedes who've most benefited from that. Uh, so I think they they are going to find a a fair compromise on that they all agree they need to bring the cost down and simplify it but you know already you can see people lining themselves up on different sides of the fence you've got Mercedes and Renault saying yeah we can change the rules but that means we're going to have to find a load more money to develop whole new engines if we abandon a lot of the current architecture we have and then of course you've got leading independents such as Red Bull and Christian Horner, who are desperate to get their hands on an, an engine that's more competitive uh, and it not be badged Mercedes or Ferrari saying, no, we need to get rid of these engines as quickly as possible and do away with as much of this complex and expensive technology as possible. So it's the usual politicking. Horner was right when he said, you know, it's all posturing and he's part of that that problem that he identifies.
2: Yeah, because if you design, if you insist on having an engine that's cheaper to build as in the unit cost to the uh, manufacturer and therefore to the customer as well that's all fine but if there's uh, a fixed cost involved in terms of actual r&d plus for onward development that's not really a saving is it that's just you're only saving money out of one pot the money is still being spent from another
0: yeah it's just one of those rather messy situations. And we are still waiting for a few additional details on the these new engines, certainly in the uh, in the public domain, shall we say. Uh, at so, the moment,
2: it's just pie in the sky, isn't it? It's just typical. It's very Max-like, actually, that move of sending a press release to everyone. Uh,
0: He'd have um, issued yeah. the actual regulations. We, we'd have the technical regulations for 2021 already, I reckon. That was always a good trick. Here's a ridiculous set of regulations. If you want to have a more sensible ones, you sort it out. And to be honest, I, I remember used to think that was a very counterproductive way of doing things. But to be quite honest, with what's happened since, it's quite hard to argue with the uh, Max maximizing way of doing things when it came to came to that. To be quite De- honest. decisive, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, Formula- it's creating a situation. It's like right, this is what's happening. Unless you come up with an alternative, so you you create that perilous endpoint. You can't just argue in circles. There's a hard deadline where things go even worse than than your alternative. When Formula One is heading
1: into a difficult battle with this because it seems like we're, we're striking into one of those eternal tensions between a, f- a form of sport that prides itself on innovation and technical excellence and uh, and we know it's expensive that's part of the glamour and the appeal so they say um, it's all about striving and, and doing better and finding more performance and doing the best you can with what you have and of course if you introduce spending limits then there's always this danger that you dumb that down. That's the point that Lauda was trying to make and that's not what Formula One's about and you you can make that argument. and A lot of people would support that but I find it interesting if you look at what happened in Brazil with Lewis Hamilton having his crash in qualifying and Lance Stroll having his gearbox failure in final practice. Paddy Lowe admitted Williams don't have the budget to line up a fifth or sixth spare engine in case that kind of disaster happens. So they had to fit an old engine into Lance Stroll's car and he was stymied for the rest of the weekend with no qualifying modes. Lewis Hamilton has a problem. Mercedes just go, yeah, take the engine out, let's put in a new one, all bells and whistles, off you go. So there is a definite big disconnect between what certain teams can spend on their racing and what other teams can spend on it. And Formula 1 has to ask itself whether they all should be allowed to spend the same and it should be controlled or whether actually... You always have the haves and the have-nots, and they just need to get on with it. It's
2: a tricky situation because, generally speaking, the more people who are involved in the process of making a decision, the less optimal that uh, the actual final decision becomes. But then, on the other hand, you could argue that in this case, one of the problems is that certain people uh, with vested interests have to have a disproportionately loud loud voice when it comes to the decision making process. I think
0: the one thing we could be sure of is particularly with the fact louder was as you said Ben having a wider pop at liberty it's almost like the honeymoon period's over now isn't it it's right okay we've had all this excitement about what's going to change but actually do you know what this is quite difficult it's very very difficult to align these ten teams with vastly different budgets and setups, etc., etc. Yes, everyone wants to spend less money, but you know Mercedes have geared up their operation for the rules as they are. So naturally, if they've got to be pulled down to, for example, Sauber level, they or Haas way of doing things, they they will push back, and the smaller teams want it pushed back more. So it's until they really find this medium point and say, that is exactly what we want to do. This These arguments will just continue endlessly on as they've been going on for, for decades.
1: Yeah, it's very tricky, like you say. And I thought it was interesting that Lauda made the point that, uh, you know, it's time to, to see what Liberty are actually going to do to innovate and also how they're going to deal with particular details around the kind of things they want to achieve. So regarding budget caps, he was saying, well, fine, bring them in, but you need to consider how you're going to do it how long it's going to take to phase it in. We've got employees, we, as you say, geared up to employ thousands of people. Do we just throw them on the street? They've got jobs. And these kind of details haven't really been, as far as we know, discussed properly or or decided upon. And it's it's these kind of grown-up decisions if you like that Liberty's got to make now it's it's all very well coming in saying yeah we want to make the Formula One great we want to expand it we want to make it bigger we want to put on more of a show and have this special kind of boxing style introductions to drivers on the grid but as Lauda said that's that's not innovative that's copying other things that's just tinkering at the edges it's time to get serious now what what are you trying to achieve and how are you going to do it?
0: And there's the challenge that Liberty faces and I think it's going to be much harder perhaps than some people expected. There was this great period where Liberty was all things to all people wasn't it? They were going to do this, they were going to more money for teams, less money for promoters paying, less money for TV rights rights for all, you know, it's kind of well, so what you're going to massively reduce the amount of money you're making and yet somehow everybody's going to get more reward. It's kind of, you know, you've got to set your dial somewhere. They
1: were just not Bernie weren't they? That was That was the honeymoon period. It's like it was anyone but and now we've lived through that and They've done a lot of talking and they've done a few things, but they've not done anything serious yet, really. Um, although they've got some serious people involved. So, yeah, now it's time to sort of end all that and, and actually get serious. And I think that's the point
0: that Lauda was trying to make. And I agree with him. And I think it's interesting, though, with Mercedes pushing that a bit, it suggests to me that behind the scenes, they've not quite seen as much as they want to. So Possibly, yeah. Interesting to see what's, what's going to happen. Well I think given the amount of talking that's going on about the the engine things we should probably stop adding to the uh, to the vast amount of, of noise being made. No more about engine him. noise. Exactly and uh, and and Part of the problem isn't it? <laughs> so uh thanks very much to Ben Anderson and to Stuart Codling for offering their illuminating insight on the Brazilian Grand Prix. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or via other podcast distributors. Also, head to com for all of the latest news and features in our plus section by such writers as Ben Anderson and Stuart Codling, where for a small fee you can read the, uh, the very incisive, behind-the-scenes, under-the-skin material that will tell you what's really going on. And arm your abuse cannons. Exactly, yeah. You can find them easily on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all over the place. Also remember to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine on Thursday where you can also read Ben's various things and you can even write a letter if you like and feedback to that. You don't have to do it socially. People media still work. do that. Sometimes they do. You we, can we,
2: send us an internet letter as, uh... <laughs> <laughs>
0: as it, send as it, me should, an internet as it should be put. But yeah, we do sometimes get some very very interesting handwritten correspondence, so uh, emails not the not the only way to do it. Social media's not the only way. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. <laughs>